As you return to your seats, would you take your Bibles and open with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. Once more, we began a number of weeks ago our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. 22 messages will take us through the whole book. This morning, we are coming to the eighth of those, and our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through verse 12. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians verse 4, chapter 4, verse 7 is on page 965. So, in case I said this multiple times the wrong way, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. This is the great thing about preaching through the book. You guys say, although he said the wrong thing, we know where we are. So, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. And then one more time, if you're able, can I invite you to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy word? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Would you remain standing once more as we pray? Father, would you now, for your weak people, enable both the preaching of the Word and the hearing and doing of the Word to be carried out in the power of the Holy Spirit? For the sake of Christ's name, For it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are a couple of notable times in the Gospels where individuals seem to express questions at best or severe doubt at worst concerning whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. One of them comes from John the Baptist. Remember the scene in Matthew chapter 11, John is in prison, a prison that will house him until he is executed by being beheaded. And as he's there, Matthew tells us that John sent word by his disciples asking Jesus this question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? A second instance takes place with two men. This time, it's after the resurrection. They're on their way to Emmaus. Jesus has actually been raised from the dead at this point, but they're completely unaware. The last news they have in their mind was seeing Jesus crucified on that Friday and laid in the tomb dead. And on their way to Emmaus, the resurrected Christ actually appears alongside of them, only they don't recognize Him. He asks them, as anyone would, what are you guys talking about? They tell Him. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And then they add this note, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Confidence, doubt, and questioning. Now, there are in these two cases, a lot of differences. John the Baptist was 
you can think of him as the last of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus says at the time that John was born, he was the greatest born of woman. The reason why is because Jesus is measuring greatness on our ability to point to him. The Old Testament prophets had all been saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. John says, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The two men on the way to Emmaus are not quite as prestigious, as quite as well-known. They're unnamed disciples of Jesus simply following on their way to Emmaus, ignorant of the fact that the resurrected Christ is with them. The circumstances are also different. John is awaiting his death, but he is awaiting his death before Jesus has even been crucified. John is on the other side of the death and resurrection of Christ from us. Whereas the men on their way to Emmaus are on this side of the Christ resurrection, even if they don't know he's been raised yet. Different individuals, different points in history. But what both of these episodes and both of these instances have in common is this underlying reality of suffering. That's what's carrying everything, isn't it? No doubt John would not have sent his disciples asking that question, were not John sitting in a prison waiting for the day he would be executed? No doubt in John's mind, this is not how he drew it up that things would be played out when the Messiah actually showed up and he was able to point him out to the world. Similarly, the men on their way to Emmaus would not, no doubt have not said in a negative way, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, but now we no longer think that if they hadn't seen Jesus suffering, hanging on a Roman cross, suffocating in his own blood in the horrendous act of crucifixion. And what both of these stories highlight for us then is that we struggle considering the purpose or even the presence of suffering. We have no place for it in the lives of our heroes, in the life of Messiah, one who would come and and, and save his people from their sins, one who would conquer Satan and sin and death. We, We have no category for suffering, do we? When we're watching a movie and you have the good guys against the bad guys and the tension is mounting and it you do not know which way this war is going to go when all of a sudden the hero rides over the hillside, you do not anticipate him coming into that fight and being slaughtered. But we picture him rising above the fray, don't we? This is one now who is not going to be touched by suffering, not going to be touched by death. And no doubt that's how we would have anticipated the Messiah as well, one who could rise above it all. And I think if we are honest, we so many times expect the same thing to be true of us. That somehow as followers of Christ, you and I should be able to to rise above the fray, to not be touched by suffering Weakness, frailty, afflicted in every way. And it's this reality that you and I struggle with the presence or the purpose of suffering that allowed Paul's opponents to seize and pounce on him, telling the Corinthians they should dismiss him. After all, they were able to say, look, the one you're following, look how frail he is. Look how weak he is. Look how afflicted he is. He has been imprisoned numerous times. He has received countless beatings. He's been shipwrecked at sea, and that is just a small taste of what he has been through. He's telling you, follow me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Is that really what you want the, the one who you follow to look like? 
Is that the frailty and the weakness and the affliction that you want to chase after? No, dismiss Paul. That's what they were saying, seizing on that reality that we like to discard those who are weak and frail and full of affliction. What Paul does in this letter is again and again and again he takes their attacks and turns them upside down. And he does that in our text this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 through 12, Paul takes the reality of suffering, and what he does for the Corinthians is shows them this is not some weakness that should enable them to dismiss or sideline Paul, but rather they need to recognize God's divine purposes in it. In other words, God is doing something, and He's doing something amazing, and He's doing something miraculous in and through our suffering. Now, as we then come to the text and we see God's purposes in it, This is not one of those sermons that I get anxious thinking, is anyone going to be able to relate to this? If ever there's a time you know that you can speak on something that hits everyone where they are, it's the reality of suffering, perhaps in greater degrees, but but all of us in our lives are facing suffering. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks as we slowly work through this fourth chapter is we're going to unfold all the things that God is doing in and through suffering and our reasons for having hope in it. So what we're doing this morning is not going to be the final word. We're going to look next week and then the week after, we're going to continue through this and find more and more and more reasons for hope that we might persevere. But this morning in our text in 4, 7 through 12, I do want to highlight what Paul shows us are God's purposes in and through our suffering. And the first one I want to note is this, God purposes our suffering so that He receives glory. God purposes our suffering so that He receives glory. Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, what does he mean by that? Let's first take treasure. What does he mean by this treasure? Well, in chapter 3, verse 4, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 6, he's talked about the glorious ministry that you and I have on this side of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That you and I have the glorious ministry where we can go and speak the glorious news of Christ, the gospel, that Jesus lived for us, died for our sins, was raised on the third day, that men can repent and believe and find forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And as we speak that message, though men are dead in their sins and though the God of this age is blinding their minds, Paul says, as we speak that gospel, Jesus Christ can shine a light into their hearts, giving them life, awakening them, removing the veils, removing the blinders, so that all of a sudden they move from being dead to having life. That is a glorious ministry. So when Paul says, we have this treasure, that's what he's talking about. In chapter 4, verse 1, he had said, having this ministry, that's what he means by this treasure. Having this glorious ministry, this glorious gospel, we have this treasure, Paul says, in jars of clay. And what does he mean by that? Well, when he references jars of clay, he's using a metaphor speaking about us, about you and I, how we go around in this world as those who in our bodies and in our souls are weak and are frail. Paul describes us as individuals who are like jars of clay, not something that's powerful, not something that's tough, 
Not something that's hard to scratch or break or crack, but something that's weak, something that's frail, something that's easily dismissed. You see, as believers, we are not somehow immune to the afflictions that everyone else suffers in the world. We too get cancer. We too have heart disease. We too face numerous illnesses and affliction. But we can say more. It's not only that we suffer the things that everyone else in the world suffers, but we also choose in obedience to Christ to invite more sufferings into our lives, don't we? I mean, take Paul's list of sufferings that he lists in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And one thing you'll notice is that if Paul had not been obeying Christ, he could have avoided most of them. Why was he shipwrecked at sea? Because he got in a boat and went to tell people about Jesus. Why was he ever stoned or received countless beatings? It's because he stood in front of a people who did not want to hear it and told them that Jesus Christ is Lord. And must bow the knee in faith to Him. As believers, again, not only do we have the typical afflictions, typical sufferings, but we invite many more into our lives in obedience to Christ. Now, now somebody might say, well, well, hold on a second. Paul's talking about himself, right? Paul has gone through that. So, so, so can we really say that, that other believers have the same experience? Well, we could point out that in verse 8, the very next verse, Paul says, we are afflicted. But even then, somebody might say, well, what Paul meant was that Paul and his traveling companions, they're afflicted. Not all believers. But again, just expand our horizons a little more, and we might remember that in Romans 8, 17, Paul says that you and I are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, we all want to be in that poll, don't we? And if we know Christ, we are. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here's what Paul says next. Provided we suffer with Him. In other words, suffering and affliction in our weakness and frailty is simply the path of believers. We will enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Now, why? Why did God make us jars of clay that can be afflicted, that can be scratched and cracked and broken. Why? Paul gives us the answer in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to, that is, here's the purpose, in order to do something, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Here's the reality. The gospel is so glorious And the heart change God brings about through the gospel is so glorious that if you and I were not weak, frail, afflicted jars of clay, individuals who hear the gospel and believe might be tempted to put their trust in us. It is so glorious and life-changing that if someone brings you this glorious and life-changing news that, that gives you life, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, everything you could ever long for, eternity, then if we were not jars of clay, weak and frail and afflicted, they might be tempted to put their trust in us. But God does make us jars of clay, weak and frail and afflicted. Why? So that we might know that the power belongs to God and not to man. Because at the end of the day, you and I in our most desperate moments need more than any man can offer. And we have more than any man can offer. 
we have Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. We have the Holy Spirit who, who when our weakness is such that we do not know how to pray, He is groaning within us with groanings too deep for words. A Father who is the Father of all comforts, who comforts us. God has made us in such a way that though we are messengers of the gospel, those who receive it cannot miss that the power belongs to Him and that all glory and all trust should be directed to Him. So that's one of the things that, that, that God does in making us weak and frail and afflicted individuals is He purposes our suffering so that He receives glory. But that's not all. Second, God purposes our suffering to manifest His preserving power. God purposes our suffering to manifest His preserving power. In verses 8 and 9, Paul starts a pattern, a pattern in which he says, this is true, but that's not true. Here's what he says. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Now, before we get to the contrast of them, and I know the contrast is there, I, I, I want to emphasize the first part of what Paul says. We are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. Paul describes the Christian life as one of affliction, again, as one of struggle. And one of the reasons that I want to note that and not gloss over it, simply running to the contrast too quickly, is sometimes I think it's in the midst of our weakness and our frailty and our affliction that the enemy whispers to us and says, God is not treating you like his child. Do you really think you belong to him and he loves you if you're going through this? But Paul says, I don't want you to miss it. We are afflicted in every way. We are persecuted, we are perplexed, we are struck down. But Paul does add the contrast, doesn't he? He says in verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. All kinds of afflictions come into our lives, but never so that we are crushed under the judgment of God. Yes, Paul adds, we are perplexed. We're confused, we're discouraged. I even think you could use the word despair here, although he's going to contrast it. Why do I say that? Because if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, do you remember Paul says, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul's not saying there isn't a place for depression or discouragement in the life of a believer. Indeed, there is what well, if we say that, then what's he saying? If, if, if he can despair of life itself, why can he say we are, maybe he despaired of life itself, but he's not driven to despair? I think what he's saying is, though our sorrows can be great, indeed the Son of God was so sorrowful he thought it was going to kill him in the garden. Though our sorrow can be great, it is never to the point that we despair without hope. We are not crushed under God we do not despair without hope. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. In that moment when it feels like everyone else is turning against us, our God is not. He is with us, holding us. And though we may be struck down, we are not destroyed and under the wrath of God in a lake of fire. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, though we go through all kinds of affliction, we 
to have the power of God enabling us to endure until we are brought to be home with Him. Now, the thing that we need to see here is that the implication is, were it not for the power of God, we would be destroyed. We would be crushed. We would be despairing without hope. But it is God's preserving power that is on display even in the midst of our suffering. For example, think of the story of Job. Satan comes to the Lord and says, Job will curse you if you would take all these things away from him. And indeed, the Lord says, fine, and and everything is stripped away from Job. And at the end, Job endures. But if you think that the story of Job is a story about the heroic nature of Job, you've missed the point. At the end, Job is standing there when the Lord shows up and Job says, I'm going to shut my mouth because mine eyes have seen the king of glory. And God all of a sudden says to Job, who can know my counsel? Who can know my ways? Who can know when I did this or how I did that? In other words, God shows up in order to say, I am the one who has been preserving you. It is easy for the world to say like the devil, the only reason they're following Jesus is because everything in their life is good. And so God purposes affliction in our life so that He might show off His preserving power. He will hold us as faithful worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ to show off the fact that He holds us tight in His hand. God purposes our suffering to manifest His preserving power. Third, God purposes our suffering to present Christ to others. God purposes our suffering to present Christ to others. In verses 10 and 11, Paul continues on. He says in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. What is Paul talking about in the first half of each of those verses? Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. That's a description of us. We are always carrying in our body the death of Jesus. Or verse 11, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. What does that mean? Well, one thing that we have spoken about and celebrated many times is the reality that salvation comes to us in being united with Jesus Christ. That salvation is the blessings we have of being united with Jesus Christ. So we can speak of the cross and say Jesus died for us. That's true. Or we can speak of the resurrection and say He was raised for us. But the Bible will also say that we died with Him or that we have been raised with Him. Why? It's because the blessings that come to Christ as the obedient God-man are given to us as well as we are united with Him. That's why Paul can say that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. He inherits all things, and through union with Him, we inherit all things as well. But one of the realities of this union with Christ also means that our life experiences parallel His, especially in regards to suffering. Again, think of how Paul ends Romans 8, 17. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. One of the things that the Bible makes clear is as believers, we will be identified with our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, to consequently face affliction. 
In the text Aaron chose as our call to worship last week in Matthew 10, we read these verses in 24 and 25. Jesus says, the disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. Okay, in what ways then, Jesus, are you going to point out that we're like you? He says this, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Therefore, Jesus' path of glory to be at the Father's right hand, ascended above the heavens, was the path of suffering, so it will be with His followers. And this is God's design. In verse 11, Paul says, for we who live are always being given over. By whom? This is the same language, the same word used when Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Paul says our life is one in which we are constantly being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Do you see that in verse 11? For Jesus' sake. So let's ask that question. How does my weakness and my frailty and my affliction and yours somehow abound to the glory of Jesus. For Jesus' sake, how does this work? Well, Paul answers in the second half of verse 10 and the second half of verse 11. Verse 10, always caring about, always caring in the body, the death of Jesus. Now he's going to tell you the purpose. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Again, the same thing in verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that... The life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, as we suffer with Christ, as we walk through this world as jars of clay, weak and frail and full of affliction, the life of Jesus Christ is being put on display before others. When the opponents of Paul were saying to the Corinthians, you need to dismiss Paul because he is weak and frail and full of suffering, they should have said, that's true. But he looks a lot like Jesus in doing that, doesn't he? He is suffering so that he might come and bring us the words of salvation. One of the most powerful examples of this, caring about the death of Jesus in our bodies so that the life of Jesus might put on display, comes from the pen of Eusebius, an early church historian. Under the reign of Marcus Aurelius, many of the believers faced intense persecution. He writes about one moment when a number were taken and they were brought into the arena and Christians were just being slaughtered left and right, ordered to renounce Christ or else face death. And he writes about one individual, a lady whom I've referenced before named Blandina. And so many of the believers were waiting around when they chose Blandina to be the next one as the Roman soldiers chose her to be the next one to undergo suffering. And a number of the believers were scared. They were nervous for Blandina because she was a small, weak, and frail woman. And they feared because of her frailty, she might renounce Christ. Her knees might buckle. So the Roman soldiers took her and persecuted her and tortured her in every way imaginable. And at the end of it all, she kept confessing Christ as Lord. And so Eusebius said they beat her and tortured her from the day all the way until the night, until the soldiers themselves grew weary. And once more, Blandina confessed Christ as her Lord. 
And so when the soldiers had enough, they took her and they hung her ravaged body on a post. And what they were going to do is they were going to open the gates and let the wild beast come and devour her body for their food, ripping her limbs from her as she hung on that post. And yet, as they hung her up, Eusebius writes this, she looked as if she was hanging in the form of a cross. And through her ardent prayers, she stimulated great enthusiasm in those undergoing the ordeal who in their agony saw with their outward eyes in the person of their sister the one who was crucified for them so that he might convince those who believe in him that any man who has suffered for the glory of Christ has fellowship forever with the living God. In other words, as they saw their sister carrying in her body the death of Jesus for Jesus' sake, they saw Christ. And they were strengthened. And they were reminded that He who has suffered for us was raised so that if we suffer with Him, we will be glorified. And they were so strengthened by watching her sister hanging on that post that the Roman soldiers decided to take her body down and save her till tomorrow. They were causing too much enthusiasm with the believers because they saw in their dear sister the life of Christ. Which brings us to our fourth point. God purposes our suffering to bring life to others. God purposes our sufferings to bring life to others. We remember where we began in this text. We have a treasure, the treasure of the gospel that can give life to others. So glorious that if we were not jars of clay, they might be tempted to trust in us. This is also where Paul ends then. Chapter 4, verse 12, death He says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. One thing they could say of Paul as Paul's opponents were afflicting him with their words in every way, telling the Corinthians to dismiss him, the one thing the Corinthians could say is, but it was through his witness that we found life. They could say, disparage him all you want, but we know that we were dead in our sins under the judgment of God, awaiting for the day that we would face his wrath like the rest of mankind, but Paul came to us. That weak and frail man, the one afflicted in every way, no doubt limping as he walked to speak in front of them, proclaimed to them the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. He proclaimed to them the treasure from the jar of clay that was his broken body, and their eyes were opened, and they had life. Brothers and sisters, one of the things that we must not underestimate is how God, in the midst of our weakness and frailty and affliction, is bringing life to others through our witness. Others may find strength in life simply by beholding what we are going through. Now, I know, I know that it is tempting to despair in our suffering, in our weakness, in our frailty, and in our affliction. I know it's easy to make this argument to God. God, if you would only remove all of this, then I could serve you better. If you'd only take it all away, I could be a more effective minister. If you would would just, just get it off my plate and let me rise above the fray of the suffering infliction of my own weakness and frailty, then I could glorify you more. And yet Paul says, let me just hit the pause button on that one point. Do not miss what God's doing. 
He's showing individuals that the power belongs to Him. He's putting your life on display as an example of His preserving power and might so that they find strength. He's displaying the glorious life of His Son who was crucified and raised, and He is giving life to others. And so our call in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our frailty, and in the midst of our affliction, I think is to say, we will continue to trust and obey the one who suffered and lived and lives for us. And so that's what we're going to do as we close the service this morning. We're going to come to the table as a declaration of our continuing trust. Though we may face his affliction, though we may face affliction now, we understand his purposes and we're holding fast in trust to the one who lived and died and was raised for us. I'm going to ask the, uh, those who are serving at the table this morning to go ahead and come. They'll have their gloves on and masks on. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ, the one who lived and died and was raised. The Bible says that if we repent of our sins and place our faith in Him, we can have eternal life, forgiveness of sins. If you'd like to talk to me or someone else about that, we would love to talk to you after the service. This morning, if you are a believer, in good standing with a gospel-preaching church, you professed your faith in Christ, then I want to invite you to come to the table. And I'm going to go ahead and ask the musicians to come forward right now as well. Because as we come to the table this morning, we're going to do something different. We're going to sing. Um, it's been a while since we've done this, but I just thought it would be a glorious moment to sing. Now, here's what I don't know. We're going to be walking forward, and we're going to be singing. And is the song going to run out before we all get done? I don't know. The Lord knows. I don't know. The Lord also knows then what it will be like when that happens. And so if that day comes, I will figure out. The band will do something or we'll walk in silence or whatever. We're playing this one by ear a bit, although they have sheet music in front of them. And we're going to come to the table um, this morning as a public testimony that we are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ with whom we suffer. And so let me pray for us, then we'll come to the table this morning. Father, thank you for this moment in which we get to profess our faith and trust in you. Thank you for this moment in which we get to publicly demonstrate that we are continuing to follow you. Though we are weak, though we are frail, though, as Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, we know that we are united with the one who was afflicted for us and was raised for us and the one who one day is coming to get us. And so we come this morning as those united with Him and united with one another. And we give you thanks, even as we publicly demonstrate our trust now in the coming of the table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.